What is up? I am Evan Lovett, and welcome to my new podcast, In a Minute with Evan Lovett. This is an Odyssey original brought to you by my company, In a Minute Media, coming to you live from my studio in the heart of my favorite city in the world, Los Angeles, California. Let's get into it. Yo, what is up? This is episode number six as we keep rolling along. A half dozen episodes. Can I say the dirty half dozen? Does that even make sense? No? (laughs) Okay, let's jump right into this. Here's the rundown of this week's episode. I'm starting a new segment, which I'm going to premiere today. It's called Things That Happened in LA This Week. So for those of you that love LA in a Minute, this is a good opportunity to catch up on some LA in a Minute type stories, some current events that I'm going to wrap history around. It's going to be fun. And today's... It's a true crime story, so stay tuned. Then we get into what I learned. It's about the Hollywood sign, which turns 100 years old this month, but that's not what I learned. Spoiler alert. This one, it's not what you think. Next up is the therapy session. I'm going to be talking about something I know everybody thinks about, death. So stay tuned for my take and why it constantly motivates me literally every minute. Lastly, If you're going to do one thing in LA this weekend, do this. I'm not going to give it away here, but this is something with a ton of history that changed the course of the culinary scene in Los Angeles about 50 years ago, and frankly, changed the world. And it's delicious. All right, y'all, let's get into it. So something that happened in LA this week. Okay, so the Oscars just happened, and one of the controversies I guess it's a minor controversy is that they excluded Robert Blake from their annual in memoriam segment now Robert Blake died the previous week for those of you that aren't familiar with Robert Blake I I really wasn't familiar with his career at least apparently he was one of the first child actors to succeed all the way through his career. He started in like our gang and stuff that was way before my time, but he made it big in a uh, program show called Beretta. And I guess he won Emmys and went on to this, to this acting career. Okay. Now the fact that he died was bigger news than it usually would be for a kind of a has been star. I mean, I don't want to disparage the guy, but he hadn't done anything prior to, to this in 20, 30, 40 years. And the reason why is because he was charged with his wife's murder in 2002. Now, his wife, Bonnie Lee Bakley, was shot and killed about a mile from my house at a Studio City restaurant called Vitello's. Great spot, by the way. Really cool spot. Live music, uh, Italian food. Uh, they had a little speakeasy upstairs. I even had my 30th birthday party there, by the way. So on the night of May 4th, 2001, Robert Blake and Bonnie Lee Blakely are eating at Vitello's, but they are arguing at the dinner table throughout the meal, right? I'm bickering. Marital stuff, who knows? They walk to the car together after the meal. They get in the car and Blake realizes that he left something important in the restaurant. So he goes back to the restaurant and leaves Bakley there in the car. Now, by all counts, the car was parked in a 
dark area of the neighborhood. And it is very dark. It's super residential, except for that Tonga Village trip. So Bakley was alone in the car. And when Blake returns to the car, roughly two, three minutes later, he finds Bakley slumped over the steering wheel with multiple gunshot wounds and, quote, blood all over the place. Now, seems fairly obvious, especially because Blake was known for playing tough guys. He was known for playing specifically tough guys with soft hearts. And it turns out that he was the one who coined the line, don't do the crime if you can't do the time, which is a line that I've heard. But this this is like 50 years ago, right? Um, but here's this tough guy and now he's, he's you know, embroiled in this, this murder thing. But he wasn't arrested. And in fact, for about a year, he wasn't even considered a suspect because his alibi was that he couldn't have committed the crime as he was going back into Vitello's to retrieve the gun that he had left in his waistband, which had fallen out at the booth inside the restaurant. Now, there's a lot going on there, right? Because the fact that he had a gun in California and Los Angeles specifically is interesting. I mean, I'm assuming he had a concealed carry permit. That's part of the alibi. You know, I I have to imagine it was a, a legal weapon. And the timing of that just works out a little too perfectly in my mind, right? Um, it takes, I know that area well, right? It's not a hyper crowded area. It is in this Tahunga village, which is really cute, by the way. And um, in the architectural guide to Los Angeles, they even point out, they specifically point out Tahunga village as one of the few places in Los Angeles that really does feel like this tight little walkable like East Village style community and it's it's gorgeous it's great but it doesn't take that long to walk back to the restaurant to walk to your car and in that little window just so happened to be the timing that his wife with whom he had a controversial relationship and this this came out in the trial and they also had an 11 month old daughter by the way different story that's that's just terrible in itself but that window just happened to be the time that she was murdered in the car. But here's the deal is they really did find the murder weapon in a dumpster near the car scene, near the scene of the crime. And it wasn't the same weapon that he had retrieved from the restaurant. And now there are witnesses of him going back to the restaurant and It was a huge, total made-for-TV, L.A.-style crime story. Again, this is 20-plus years ago, but I remember it because I was like, who's Robert Blake? What's the big deal? But it was all over TV, you know, in the aftermath of O.J. and Menendez and, you know, our culture. Um, But it turns out that he was indeed acquitted of the murder. Now, he had spent 11 months in jail awaiting trial, And he was adamant that he did not kill his wife and the jury did acquit him. Now, a civil jury ended up finding him liable for his death and ordered him to pay Bakley's family $30 million and that sent him into bankruptcy. And then the daughter that he had with Bakley was raised by other relatives and went for years without seeing him. So it's a tragic story all around and it is a very interesting and unique LA crime story and 
that is what happened in Los Angeles this week. As I was reminded with the controversy as they left him out of the in memoriam at the Oscars, probably for good reason. Now, sticking with the Hollywood theme. <laughs> you know, it's funny on, on LA in a minute. I don't do a lot of Hollywood stuff because the, uh, the LA in a minute people, myself included, we, we know that Los Angeles is so much more than Hollywood, Beverly Hills, and Santa Monica. But hey, it was just the Oscars, the, the spotlight of the world's on LA. So what I learned is about Hollywood. And it's about the Hollywood sign. So let's talk about the Hollywood sign. We all know it. It's probably the most recognizable sign on the planet Earth. But this is what I learned. That sign has nothing to do with entertainment. Nothing to do with movies, movie stars, none of it, zero. In fact, in 1923, the sign was erected as a sign that led, read Hollywood Land. And the sole purpose of the sign was to promote a real estate development called Hollywood Land. Now, the reason they pitched the de development was to live above the din and the noise of this burgeoning Hollywood community. Live above the fray. You're in a completely different world. I mean, this begat the Hollywood Hills. And what's interesting is, well, one of the men behind the Hollywood land development was Harry Chandler, Harry Chandler of the LA Times, the same Harry Chandler who was in the syndicate with to, to lead William Mulholland to build the aqueduct to steal water from the Owens River Valley to bring it to L.A. to make all the land in the San Fernando Valley where the aqueduct comes into valuable land. So this man, Harry Chandler, was a business genius and a real estate genius. So he's behind this Hollywood land development, put up the sign, draw attention. Uh, let's have people buy this land and, and buy property. So... The timing was perfect, okay? This is 1920s. We're talking films had basically just made the jump from you watch them by putting a nickel into what was called a Nickelodeon. Maybe you guys have seen these things where you almost crank it. You're looking downwards. It's a personal box where you're watching the, the moving picture with no sound. But they had just made that jump to the big screen, but they were still silent movies. And finally now... They were becoming talking pictures, which was a huge deal, right? This is, this is when the golden age of Hollywood just happened to be emerging right as this Hollywood land real estate development launched. And even still, this Hollywood land sign was only supposed to be up for 18 months. Now you got to imagine, y'all know the Hollywood sign, but now it says Hollywood land. And back then it was adorned with 4,000 light bulbs. You could see it at night. You could see it from Wilshire Boulevard. It was a sight to behold. It was one of the early famous signs, not just in Los Angeles, but in the world. And again, this is when Charlie Chaplin is giving way to Clark Gable. This is when movie premieres are becoming front page news. All of a sudden, Hollywood is the talking point, not just for Los Angeles, but the United States. We are about to have a revolution in culture because of Hollywood, right as this Hollywood land sign is popping up. So land is sold. Housing development starts developing. 
But the sign stays up because now all of a sudden, this is a monument to the movie industry, to films, to moving pictures, to movie stars. And it's a point of pride. And now when you know Hollywood, you know Hollywood land and the sign. And that sign continued to read Hollywood land until 1949 when the Hollywood Chamber of Commerce finally started to fix up the sign and be getting a little faded and dilapidated. And then they shortened it to just make it Hollywood because it was synonymous with Hollywood and the movies. But even after the Hollywood Chamber of Commerce revitalized the sign, it fell into disarray. These are wooden letters. These are like 45 foot tall letters. This is almost a 200 foot long sign. Like who is taking care of this, right? So it fell into disarray again. And then by 1978, and you can look at these pictures, it looks like somebody dropped a bomb on it. I mean, the first O looked like a U. The third O fell down completely. It, it was an eyesore, right? So up steps Hugh Hefner. Yes, Hugh Hefner of Playboy, who led a campaign for the sign's reemergence. So this sign which had nothing to do with the industry, was now so important for the industry, was so important for the Hollywood community that the industry was formally adopting and funding it. Hugh Hefner brought along Alice Cooper, former famous rock star, Gene Autry, one of the original Hollywood cowboys, and a host of other celebs to save the sign and make it a beacon to the world to this day. So 100 years of the Hollywood sign, which at the end of the day... It's just a real estate for sale sign. And that's what I learned. Woo. So that was something to digest right there. I mean, the Hollywood sign is really something as somebody in Los Angeles, you kind of take for granted, right? I drive around it. I'd see it, but I never really went up there. And I do suggest, you know, at one point going up there and, and paying your respects. It's really cool up close. But yes, remember that that, was a real estate advertisement. Okay, now on to my therapy session for the week, man. This one is something that, <laughs> this could be my therapy session every week uh, perpetually because I'm always thinking about it. The fear of dying. And yes, we're all afraid of death. At least I think we all are. I haven't had that conversation with too many people. Maybe that guy in Free Solo who climbs the, the rock faces isn't, but most people that I know are. But the thing with me is, is the fear of death has been a catalyst of mine for, it's been a catalyst for basically everything I do since I can remember. I mean, even when I was 10, 11 years old, I'd always think, what if I die? I need to leave a legacy. I kept a diary, a, a written diary that I turned into an autobiography. I called it an autobiography. It wasn't an autobiography, but I turned into an autobiography because I was like, what if I die? Somebody needs to know my true story. It was always meant for publishing. I know that's self-centered again, only child, but I did. I kept it started because I was always worried about dying, right? My dad's father died at 43. My dad's brother died at 47. My uncle, man, uncle Art, the boxing manager in jabs died at 47. I'd never seen my dad cry before that point and he was a wreck man this was his older brother and it was it was terrible and I was close to him and 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 it hit me and my mom's friend died that same year and then my dad had open heart surgery when he was 46 
and he's in the hospital and you're like, you know, we, we always knew the clock was ticking because again, the male Lovitz up to that point hadn't had longevity, you know, and that's in my head. And he had this open heart surgery and, and he gets out of the hospital and when he, you know, he recovers and for a momentary, for, for a short time, he's eating better and exercising, doing all that. But you know, that goes, it's, it's tough, man, for older, older folk, older shit. I'm approaching that age. But he had this open heart surgery, gets out of the hospital, and he's fine. And he said he beat the Love It Curse. And I was like, damn, Love It Curse. <laughs> I'd never put it in those terms, but I guess subconsciously that was, you know, really what was on my mind. That, that was how it was because I had always been thinking about death and about dying. But it was great. It was great because he did live and I got to enjoy my dad for a whole 20 years longer. And you know what? He died at 66, which... Shit, man. I hope I make it to 80 at least, but you know, I know he was actually satisfied with 66 with that that track record. 43, 47. I mean, man. And then my mom dies at 69, which again, that's a pretty young age in this day and age, below the average. So I mean, the odds were not really in my favor. And and I kind of you know, I kind of know all these things, right? And and the way I sleep at night, the way I, I even can enable myself to stop obsessing over death or, or my potential death is that my grandma, one grandma on my mom's side lived to 97. So when I'm praying at night, I'm like, man, please give me that longevity gene, right? But but ironically, that sleeping at night, that that's not something I did much, right? I remember reading when I was in college that Bill Clinton had trained himself to sleep less, right? We all want our eight hours. I think now I hear people say seven hours, which is cool, which is about where I'm at. But in college, I was like, man, I need to be productive. I need to write this legacy. I do not know when I'm going to die. My heart is the proverbial ticking time bomb, man. Cholesterol issues, uh, hypertension. Uh, my dad had developed late stage diabetes. My mom had COPD, all this stuff. I, I wasn't a hypochondriac, but I would go to doctors all the time. I proactively had a cardiologist and I would get the EKG and get hooked up to all these machines just to make sure my heart's working fine. And yes, I would exercise and eat right, but I'd also party and eat like shit. You know what I mean? And then regret it and then be like, oh my God, did I just take some days or years off my off my life clock? You know what it is? Um, but the point is, I always felt sleeping was unproductive. So Bill Clinton had trained himself to sleep four and a half hours a day. And I was so envious. So I looked into how he did this, right? And I remember his training program and, and basically in a nutshell, it was sleep 30 minutes less for 28 days, right? Like if you're sleeping seven hours, then sleep six and a half hours for 28 days, your body will get used to it. Then sleep six hours for 28 days. I got down to being able to operate on five, five and a half hours. Never got down to the Bill Clinton four and a half. But it wasn't, I'm trying to be Bill Clinton. I was just trying to be awake and be productive and do something to build that legacy and to always do things and not waste my time, a quote unquote, waste my time. And it's funny because I didn't watch TV or movies, right? I, I would make the exception to watch baseball movies. All right. I watch Bull Durham, watch Major League. But 
I always felt TV and movies were a waste of time. For the record, by the way, they're not some of my best friends, some of the smartest people, most influential people. You learn from movies. You have the experience or just the enjoyment, the release. Like, But for me, if I wasn't physically doing something, if I wasn't working towards building whatever legacy, and I didn't even know what that legacy was, and maybe that was part of the the pain and the quest and the obsession. Cause I'm like, I got to do all these things before I figure out what my thing really is. But that fear of death drove me to be productive, right? I was so hell bent on, on making my mark, right? Whatever that meant. And I would try to be there for people in the meantime, be there for my parents. Uh, you know, my wife try to be a good husband now, good father, but always in the back of my mind, the, obsession of I could die of a heart attack or whatever it is tomorrow, next week, next month. And what do I have to show for it? And look, I know a lot of people feel that way. Tell me how you feel. Tell me that you relate or tell me you don't. I always, when I see people chilling and relaxing, like these laid back people, I'm always like, damn, I envy that. But I'm also like, do they just know? Do they this have these good genes? I'm going to live till 96. So I don't even need to worry about death. Or they just better adjust it and they're not, they're not obsessed about it, right? And it's like, man, those of you that are getting older, <laughs> you know how the, uh, the body develops not in ways that you necessarily want, right? So I got this bump on the inside of my knee. Go to a doctor. Is that cancer? No, it's not. It's just a spider vein, which is kind of nasty, by the way. But what's a spider vein? Is that going to kill me? You know, my dad ended up having a blood clot. Like, so did that, could that be a thing for it? Do I need to get it fixed? I got, and those of you that have seen my Ellie in a Minute videos, sometimes I got these red marks on my face. They just came out of nowhere. Like, is that melanoma? So I go to the, the dermatologist, but I really always am thinking about it and it's not a healthy way to be, but I guess you could say it motivates me. And with my work ethic for Ellie in a Minute, with my productivity, I do think it's something that I'm proud of because I'm able to put together a ton of good content in a relatively short period of time. But truthfully, it is that fear of death that motivates me because I'm always wondering how much time I have to live. So, I mean, anybody, let me know if you think about that. Let me know how to deal with that. Let me know how you deal with that. Just leave a comment, leave a DM, but man, that is just something that is always, always on my conscience and subconscious. Okay, moving on from the fear and obsession with death to the celebration of life. And this is a celebration because if you're going to do one thing in LA this weekend, do this. Go to King Taco. That's right. The LA institution. And it's not because they have the best tacos. Every time I talk about King Taco on LA in a minute, everybody has comments, right? And I'm not here to debate the best taco. For me, the best taco in Los Angeles is whichever one I'm eating at that moment. There's so many great ones in Los Angeles. But King Taco is very good. I love their carne asada and their salsa. But that's not even why it's the one thing to do in LA this weekend. The reason why is what King Taco and it's founder Raul Martinez mean to Los Angeles, okay? So Raul Ma Martinez, who's the founder, is the consummate American dream story. This dude immigrated from Mexico City in 1969 with his wife. They didn't have bus fare to cross the border from Tijuana, but some 
soul. He called him an angel, gave him the bus fare, and they get in the United States, ends up settling. He's It lives near MacArthur Park, by the way, very famous landmark. Used to be known as Westlake Park, was one of the most fancy neighborhoods in Los Angeles in the early uh, 20th century. But anyway, MacArthur Park, he'd watch soccer matches, and this is in the early 1970s, right? So he'd start grilling up some carne asada, making his own tacos. And soon people were asking, hey, can I have some or can I buy some, right? And he ended up bringing enough carne asada where he'd like start selling some tacos. But he had this crazy idea, crazy at the time, to buy an ice cream truck. And he took that ice cream truck and he turned it into a taco truck. And people thought he was a nuts. Dude. People buy ice cream out of trucks, but tacos, you're going to like cook in there and bring it around. And, and like, don't get me wrong. Roach coaches, as they're pejoratively called, have been around. You know, the the, the movie folk see them. Uh, construction sites, stuff like that. Tamal, tamaleros had sold tamales on the streets as far back as the 1800s in Los Angeles. But this was the first of its kind. A dude that's going to take the flat top grill, chop up the carne asada, blah, blah, blah. You know, get the marinade, put all the cilantro, the onion on it out of a truck and the people that thought he was nuts well they did a double take because he parked in front of a bar in east la and his first night he made 70 bucks second night he made 150 bucks we're talking 1973 that's pretty good money overnight within six months the first king taco brick and mortar in cypress park was born and guess what now there are 22 locations and they're legit so find the closest one by you. A lot of people think the one in East LA near Boyle Heights is the original. It is the most popular, but that's King Taco number two. And it's always a good excuse to go see the 6th Street Viaduct. But go pay ode to one of the most important people in Los Angeles culinary history. Raul Martinez is the reason that Kogi and Roy Choi exist. He's the reason why you can find excellent tacos and taco trucks on nearly every boulevard in Los Angeles. This is a piece of history. And they are delicious. So that is our show. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of In a Minute with Evan Lovett. Enjoy your day, your weekend, your week. Enjoy life. And don't forget to subscribe and give me a five-star rating. And lastly, send the podcast to five of your friends. It'll mean a lot to me. All right, y'all. It's been a minute.